Welcome to the founders of Web3 series by Outlier Ventures and me, your host, Jamie Burke. Together, we're going to meet the entrepreneurs, their backers, and the leading policymakers that are shaping Web3. Together, we're going to try to define what is Web3, explore its nuances, and understand the mission and purpose that drive its founders. If you enjoy what you hear, please do subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission that is Web3. Today, I'm uh, really happy to welcome Brennan Ike, uh, founder and CEO of Brave Browser, basic attention token, creator of JavaScript, and co-founder of Mozilla, Firefox, um, all-round web pioneer. Um, welcome, Brendan. Thanks for having me. So um, whilst at Netscape, you famously built JavaScript in 10 days, which is now, for better or worse, ubiquitous across the web. Alongside HTML and CSS, JavaScript is one of the kind of core technologies that drive the web and enable much of the interactivity that people just take for granted. Um, for the benefit of listeners, uh, including loading new page content without reloading the page, uh, animation, interactive content like games, videos, web forms, and of course, I guess the thing that you're most concerned about and, and trying to resolve or solve for now, which is uh, users' behavior analytics, ad tracking, and this kind of personalization through cookies. So in a way, it's the success of many of your innovations and perhaps the unintended consequences that have brought about Brave. So I'm really looking forward to exploring your journey as a web pioneer and going a bit deeper into Brave and its mission. Yes. So, you know, back in the 90s with Netscape, we were trying to make the web easy to use for average folks. Earlier browsers, notably um, NCSA Mosaic, had already started taking off and people could see the, the value of unifying uh, sort of information under this you click on a blue link and get a new page model. And form elements to come in. Uh, I think NCSA Mosaic under Mark Andreessen and Eric Bina added the image element in 1993. Netscape in its first year, uh, 1994, Lou Montulli added the cookie, which is somewhat misnamed. I think it was inspired by another use of cookie, the magic cookie, which comes from Unix and it describes the first few bytes of a, maybe the, traditionally the first four bytes of a file, a binary file format, which contains a number that should be unlikely to occur randomly and that can be used to identify the file type. The cookie on the web, the browser-based cookie, is a bit of storage. One sort of blob of storage can be fairly big. Um, I forget the current limits, but back then we considered anything that was like over a kilobyte big or 8K, certainly big. Per, let's say, website, if you think of it that way, uh, it's, there's a more technical limit to it that equates all the sort of top level plus one domains. So, you know, um, bbc.co.uk or nytimes.com would both be identifiers for cookie jars uh, or, or cookies, really. And the cookie uh, is associated with that domain, whether the content is the page you're looking at or something embedded inside the page. And that means that the cookie gets stored based on what the server sent and it gets sent back to the server on subsequent fetches so that you can have the server update it based on its previous value. So the server doesn't have to keep 
track of you through some other means because there really isn't any other means to do it, in, or there wasn't then anyway in, in the HTTP. It was so-called stateless, which meant if you go to your bank and you log in using a form, the page that uh, authenticates you is the only page that knows about you. If you go to a different page, you're going to have to log in again, which would be a bit of a drag. So cookies relieved users of having to do that, just as embedded images <laughs> relieved you from having to get a, a plug-in of some sort or go to a full-page image. So these innovations were meant for good reason to make the web more usable by average people, but they had unintended consequences even before I did JavaScript. The combination of the image and the cookie, if you digest what I just told you, it, it makes tracking possible. You can have what came to be called a pixel because it was usually a small image you wouldn't notice. Maybe it was transparent or translucent, um, semi-opaque. And it was one by one pixels on your screen. It was somewhere tucked away on the page. And if it was embedded on two different publishers' sites, so let's say newyorktimes.com and espn.com, but the same pixel was being fetched from a, a tracking service that hosted that, that little image, tiny little image. Well, then through cookies, that tracking server could see that you're a new user on the New York Times. It hasn't got a cookie for you. It assigns you an ID, say one, two, three, four. And it sets that in the cookie for the pixel at its web address. And the way it's embedded is not just the address, trackingserver.com, let's say. It, it's got a, a further part to the right in the URL, the web address, and that part can be used to identify that it's a New York Times embedding of this image. Um, but when you go to ESPN, the same image, uh, possibly with a different decoration on the end of the link to, to identify that it's on ESPN is fetched. And because it's fetched from the same trackingserver.com, well, if there's a cookie, that'll be sent back. Uh, if there's not a cookie, the tracking server will, will assign a new user ID. But since you went to New York Times first, you're known as user 1234. And now, after visiting ESPN, the tracking server knows you've gone to New York Times and then ESPN. And it can build a dossier on you, and this is done all over the web. You know, to cut to the chase, JavaScript added fuel to the fire and made it possible to get rid of the image altogether. You can just use scripts, which are also embedded elements that can, can be fetched and, and um, can set cookies. So now with this, this sort of troika of image cookie and JavaScript, the whole uh, sort of primitive fundament of ad tracking and, and surveillance and analytics, as you say, was, was ready. And it took a little while for this to be realized. I remember I was at Netscape in 1995 doing JavaScript in a hurry. Sometime in 1996, I think uh, Lou Montoli wanted to get rid of third-party cookies, the so-called embedded ones, the ones that aren't set by the whole HTML page you're looking at, like the New York Times news article, but rather by the tracking server with its little element hiding there. Uh, and it was too late. It, it, a lot of things that get out of the lab onto the web get such wide adoption that they set a de facto standard. This happens all the time. Um, Mark Andreessen told me that when they had only 80 servers on the early web and they made some sort of change to Mosaic that threatened to break some of the content, they, they quickly reverted that change because they realized that it had become a de facto standard, even with a, what we would now regard as a small population. And it would have been easier to change then than any time after, but even then they didn't want to change it because of the incentive to uh, not break the web, as people say, don't break the web. Um, so, you know, a lot of these innovations, once out, could not be recalled. The genie was out of the bottle. And um, 
tracking was done in the 90s. It, it was not widely understood how it worked. I think certainly not like the average users, the bulk of users. But you know, there there were companies doing it. Uh, there were a lot of ads that were just banner ads, and they were like takeover or sponsorship. They didn't have any targeting capability. But as the tracking powers built up their their expertise with cookies and scripts, uh, they started compiling dossiers on on people. I think the ad server that became DoubleClick, which Google bought in 2008, was started in, in the late 90s or 2000, I forget the exact date. And it was called the Dash server, I believe, at first. And it was one of the early ones that I think did tracking. There were others. There are people who sort of mix this up with advertising. They say advertising was the primal sin of the web because it conditioned people to expect free content. I, I take a different position. I think tracking was the problem. And if you have a pure sponsorship ad or an ad that's in getting you to contribute to a charity and nothing happens until you click on it, and if you change your mind and don't fill out the form and donate money, nothing bad happens, then I think there's nothing wrong with that kind of a sponsorship ad or whatever you want to call it. Um, so you have to separate ads from tracking. It's as if you, you went to your local you know, grocery store and, and instead of you know, flyers on stands or uh, at the door, the flyers detached and became little paper drones that followed you home, <laughs> spied through your windows and uh, did things to you. So, you know, it's not the, the, whatever the promotion is on the flyer that's bad. It's not the ad as a call to action or a piece of brand uh, collateral. It's really the tracking. And so, you know, long story short, by the time I'd say maybe 2006, uh, Firefox had come out and we pioneered uh, extensions. We called them add-ons. Eventually, the, the variant that Chrome supports sort of swept the field and everybody who's doing extensions now kind of supports that because that's where most of the extensions are in the Chrome Web Store. But Firefox at first had add-ons and still has quite a few, though so it, it, it's deprecated or retired its old extension model. But when we built that extension model, we allowed for things like turning off JavaScript across almost all pages. That's the famous NoScript add-on. And I think that was the number one at the time. And then ad blocking uh, was done as an extension. It was originally, I believe, called AdBlock, and then there was some fork and it became AdBlock Plus. That went from being a Firefox add-on to being an extension on all browsers and also having its own browser on mobile on Android, where for some non-coincidental reason, the Chrome browser doesn't allow any extensions. So you can't have an ad blocking extension on Chrome for Android. So users liked ad blocking, publishers hated it. And this started a contentious period. There was even litigation in Germany. Uh, I think the maker of Adblock Plus, IO, won almost every case, won every case in, in, in summary and or on appeal. And the users have a right to do this. When you're using the web by design for accessibility, if you're handicapped or if you're on a limited bandwidth device or you're using an old terminal <laughs> where you use a text browser, you're allowed to take pieces of the content that are served, provided you have authorization to get to them. And you know most of the web is freely open. You don't have to log in at all to get to it. You can download pieces of it and block other pieces from being downloaded. You can mash up the things you download. You can make your own local uh, combinations, do your own local um, you know, edits, if you wish. Now, their copyright and trademark law would bind uh, you from publishing your changes to somebody else's material if they held copyright and so on. But the web by design allows the, the browser user to mix and match and block. And this was pretty well settled in not just Germany with IO, but in other jurisdictions. And 
Uh, so ad blocking took off and publishers hated it because it, they thought there were free riders out there denying them revenue. And they were right. But the, if the user has the right to do it, I think you have to respect that. Publishers have been under pressure, especially the newspaper business for decades from you know prior technological shifts, but didn't get any easier when Craigslist took down classified advertising revenue. And then you know the rise of Google and Facebook is, is I think, widely cited. And I think this is supported, well-supported as damaging publisher revenue. Publishers had so many you know abuses and insults to their revenue that they, they didn't like ad blocking. And for a time, they, they fought not only legally, but sort of with users. They would put up anti-ad block dialogues when you try to go to their site. They'd say, I see you're running an ad blocker. You must turn it off or subscribe, generally overpaying for content when you only want one article and don't have good options for buying just one article. Or, you know, go away. <laughs> we, don't, we don't like you. And I think Wired did this and a bunch of other sites did this starting in 2015. And uh, it generally failed. Users just went elsewhere. And the further commodification of news meant they could find stories elsewhere. And the Alexa ranks of all these sites like Wired that tried this sort of user hostile banner against ad blocking uh, went down. So, you know, there, there was, there was a, an opportunity there. I think Brave, we started in 2015. And I'd already seen it in Mozilla from the rise of Adblock and Adblock Plus as extensions, as Firefox add-ons. Uh, I'd seen the, the, the opportunity. But at Mozilla, we didn't do much about tracking. We, we were busy, I think, growing Firefox and restarting standards bodies. In, in hindsight, I regret this. Um, and over time, you know, with Google bringing Chrome out, uh, it got harder to try to change the, the defaults to block tracking because sometimes you would break a site that had tied some inappropriate knot so that if you block tracking, the site malfunctions. Uh, if you block tracking and that blocks ads, the site malfunctions. And so it was hard, I think, for browsers that hadn't done anything from the start to start doing things. Now, Apple Safari came out a year before Firefox 1.0. There was an earlier version of Firefox at the same time, but uh, we, we didn't do 1.0 until November 2004. And in 2003, Safari came out and it had a third-party cookie blocker, the, the, the kind that blocks those cookies set by those embedded elements like scripts and images that can track you. So Apple got it right from the start, relatively speaking. Now, they had a loophole in that cookie blocker in that if the domain trying to set the cookie as an embedded element had already successfully set a cookie as a page you visited, a so-called first-party cookie, then it was allowed to track you. And so, you know, the advertising companies, some of which you may never have heard of, such as AppNexus, figured this out. And they would cleverly do things where if they got the chance to handle an ad click, sometimes these were accidental, or if they got the publisher for whom they were serving ads or delivering ads to arrange it, why clicking on the ad or otherwise interacting with the publisher might take you to appnexus.com as a full first party page, very briefly. And that would set an appnexus.com cookie in Safari, and then thereafter they were whitelisted for tracking. And this was called a redirect bounce because, of course, you didn't want to go to AppNexus. So as soon as you landed there and they sent the cookie, they'd immediately redirect you back to wherever it was you were supposed to be going, whether it was another page on the first party, the publisher, or it was the ad you clicked and you wanted to get to some full page ad uh, unit. And that, that that loophole, once it was known, got exploited. So my friends at uh, Apple came up with intelligent tracking prevention a few years back. I forget when they started it. I think it was after we started Brave. But... Uh, Brave also had benefit of, you know, some really great work in other extensions. I'll, I'll call out uBlock Origin, which is another one of these uh, really 
tracking and ad blocking, uh, tracking prevention and ad blocking extensions. And so we, we, we'd seen that if someone was diligent, they could keep up with the adversary who was trying to track users and also try to unbreak sites that had these sort of accidental malfunctions when you did block tracking or ads. So that was informative to Brave. And since I was starting a new browser, I, I thought this is the time to do something for privacy. I'm annoyed by these things. I don't like the feeling of tracking. Just retargeting, which is trying to not only compile a dossier on you, but decide whether you're in the mood to, to get shoe ads. Maybe you just bought shoes the other day at the physical store, but they're going to show you shoe ads until you know for 30 days. And th that's annoying. It can actually be worse than annoying. It can be abusive. It can be used by bad actors. Um, it can certainly spoil a birthday surprise for somebody who walks in uh, if you're being retargeted for the gift you bought them the previous night, especially if they're children. And you know, users have rights to protect themselves. But the really uh, nefarious stuff that we noted when we launched Brave in early 2016 was front page news on all the sort of internet news sites. You had, I think in early March, malvertising, ransomware hidden inside ad JavaScript that was being loaded as if it were an ad. It was being placed through an ad exchange. It was getting onto the New York Times. Now, I guarantee you, the New York Times did not contract directly or do direct sales of its ad space with a malware vendor. The way this happened was through the, the what's called the Lumascape or the ad tech ecosystem that evolved from those fundamental building blocks of the image cookie in JavaScript. And this is an amazing ecosystem. It, it mediates between the publishers who have ad space, what's sometimes called inventory, and more important, they have audience, which are the people that are tracked not only when they're on that publisher site, but across other sites, we'll get back to that, uh, mediates between the publisher's ad inventory and the brands and the marketing agencies that help the brands put ads into those ad slots. That can be done with direct sales and the biggest sites do it and that gives them a better margin and higher quality control and other things. So they have to have a sales force, they have to have their own tech team that can do the some of the ad serving integration. Turns out a lot of them use Google uh, double click, which I mentioned already, even for direct sold ads. But if you don't have scale and there's you know millions and millions of websites, then you end up not being able to afford direct sales. You can't, you don't have the scale to attract the brands anyway. You can't afford a sales team. What do you do? Well, you're told to go, to, <laughs> I'll use Google as an example, there are many, go to uh, the Google, I guess it's called Google Tag Manager or Google Publisher Tags now. I used to call it double click all the time or double click for publishers, DFP. You'll go to that site and they'll say, hey, here's a bit of JavaScript. Copy this and paste it into your head of your HTML document. And you know, Bob's your uncle. Now you start getting paid. And it is kind of magical because it's not a lot of work, though publishers often get it wrong or they, they aren't super technical. So it's even pasting a little JavaScript thing can be a challenge. But assuming that they have people visiting their site and Google sees that, Google then can arrange, and again, I'm picking on Google, but there are many companies that do this. Google can then arrange to make a match between the brands trying to put ads for goods and services in front of pe people and the ad space that the publisher uh, made available, either you know by configuring this little script it pasted in or doing something in its dashboard or doing some extra work in the HTML. There, there are lots of ways to do it. And this evolved into such a complex system that you have layers of intermediation. You don't just have the ad server or the ad exchange, let's call it, that Google is the premier example of in the middle. You have 
things like supply-side platforms, which are these entities that help publishers or supposedly help publishers <laughs> um, get better yield, get better ad revenue from sort of middle or bottom tier slots. You have innovative companies like header bidders, which may be uh, still around. They certainly had a, a heyday a few years back where even though you're using, let's say, Google for your main ad um, revenue as a publisher, a header bidder company like Sonobi, which I advised, can come in and say, put a little extra JavaScript in the head of the document and we'll take a first look as soon as the page starts loading at the user. And if we, through our tracking cookie and so on, can, can get a better ad deal than your main ad partner, we'll, we'll take over the ad delivery. We'll even reprogram in the page the Google ad server that you've set up uh, to do your main deals with. And we'll preempt those deals and do our own deals and we'll give you a better yield. And so you, you had sort of this mutualism or parasitism on top of the main ad server by a header bidder. On the other side of the ad exchange, you have sort of data management platforms. Some people call the brand or advertiser facing side, the demand side platform. Google really is kind of the combination of the ad exchange and the demand side platform. And, um, they kind of tie it all up into a nice package. But there are companies that do individual pieces of these functions, individual three-letter acronyms like DMP, DSP, SSP, supply-side platform. And it becomes this confusing alphabet soup of uh, intermediaries. Well, when you've got too many intermediaries, you've got problems. The fees are high. There's la lack of transparency. Like you don't even know necessarily if you're getting paid properly. This, this has happened. Supply-side platforms were essentially cheating publishers by... I would say lying about how much they were making and they would take a bigger fee than they promised. Publishers could find this out by, by buying some of their own ad space. Uh, I think the Guardian famously just bought out its own ad inventory over a month and found they were making 30 pence on the pound. So 70% of the gross ad spend, which comes from the marketers, again, they're, they're paying for the audience or the ad space. Really modern way of talking about it is the audience. 70% of that gross ad spend was being taken out by intermediaries. And so, you know, that's too high a fee. There's not transparency. You could be being cheated. Other bad things happened. I mentioned malware. When we launched Brave, that helped us grow because people started realizing there's a real threat in the ad exchange. The malware vendor never had a direct relationship with the New York Times. New York Times was using Google, I'm pretty sure. And you may have read they just announced they're going to get rid of almost all third-party or all third-party ads because they have the scale and the high quality first party data on their subscribers and readers. They're still going to use the Google ad server, I believe. It's just hard to replace that. But at the time, 2016, New York Times definitely was not just using the Google ad server. They were using third party ads. What is a third party ad? It could be somebody who's trying to get an ad into a middle or bottom of the page slot. Not a great ad, but make some extra money for the New York Times. And it goes through the Google ad exchange. So that advertiser has to sign up with Google, but not necessarily with New York Times, generally not. And that, <laughs> that, that company, it's amazing. Uh, this has been diagrammed by some of the security researchers. Could be a fake. It could have fake LinkedIn profiles for its executives. It could have fake address. It could be an address in, I don't know, Ukraine or Russia or somewhere. Um, it could be pretending to be a respectable company when it's really trying to distribute ransomware, which takes over your PC and holds it hostage for Bitcoin and encrypts the, the file system, the, the disk, uh, or the solid state disk drive. And, and when this happens, it, you know, especially to somebody's grandmother and they want their PC back with all their grandchildren's pictures, 
the laughing skull tells them on their screen how to buy Bitcoin and pay the ransom. And you've probably heard about hospitals that have had ransomware take over the entire set of computers in the hospital. This is a serious criminal problem. Uh, it's a criminal enterprise. And it uses the ad exchange. And the kicker is those intermediaries, including the main exchange operator, take their fee. And the criminals pay to put the ad through. It's a 40 cent cost per thousand impression ad. It's a low cost ad. But they'll pay for it because they make so much profit on the ransom. And uh, this happened to the New York Times, BBC Online, AOL, I believe, uh, and a few other notable sites. So it, it continues to happen. It's, it's not a solved problem. Um, the New York Times going away from third-party ads is, is one um, sign of the times that when you're big enough, like the New York Times and Washington Post, you want to solve many problems like revenue problems, getting rid of intermediaries, getting rid of malvertising, so-called uh, malware in ads. You will get rid of third-party advertisers. But... If you're using the ad exchange and it's matchmaking so-called advertisers against real publisher space, then it can make a match without anybody checking that the payload doesn't contain an exploit kit loader that's going to try to bang on all these exploitable bugs in your browser or your operating system, take over your PC, encrypt the disk, and demand Bitcoin. There's a flip side to malvertising or a dual, a mirror twin, which is ad fraud. So that's when real advertisers, no malware, <laughs> are getting their ads put in fake ad slots, in fake publisher pages that are being viewed by no human. They're being viewed in the matrix, often in cloud infrastructure, by a bot, a headless browser instance. And it looks to the JavaScript that loads with the ad, including anti-fraud JavaScript that's sold by vendors, like, I don't know, Double Verify or Moat, which Oracle bought. These vendors say, our JavaScript can tell whether it's fraud. Well, you can't. I'm here to tell you I created JavaScript. I made it um, very mutable and extensible and easy to mock up standard objects or built-in library objects and replace them even. And so ad fraud uh, involves doing that to some extent to put the double verify anti-fraud JavaScript in the matrix. And you know, if you're in the matrix, sometimes you see the black cat twice, it means that the agents are reprogramming it, and that, that tells you to get ready for the attack. But it's a, that was Neo. You have to be kind of the one to see that. Most people don't. Uh, most advertisers and double verify scriptwriters don't. They just can't. There's really no way in this sort of arms race for the JavaScript that loads to be sure it hasn't been put into a fake environment, like a, a fraud bot environment, put into the matrix. Um, the matrix is telling its brain that the steak is juicy and delicious. And so the advertiser pays thinking that it got a real impression. You know, it's a fraction of a cent, but these add up. And it just blindly pays through this ad exchange to settle with the fraudulent fake publisher. The fake publisher may be even impersonating through domain uh, name uh, claim or, or even spoofing that it is the New York Times when it is not. Now, the, the fraud actor here has to sign up with the exchange, let's say Google, as a publisher. So, you know, Google polices this, but it's, it's hard. And the brand that's running the real ad and ultimately paying the real uh, revenue through the intermediary who gives the remaining part to the fake publisher is not able to check for discrepancies. Like, hey, I, I have an ad on the New York Times through some direct deal. I know it's its publisher identifier in the Google Ad Exchange on, on the publisher side. And now I think I'm paying the New York Times, but it's got a different ID. This must be a fraud actor. I'm not paying it. 
you could do that if you were diligent enough and you can get at the logs that have all these IDs in them. Most people don't. I think sometimes, you know, uh, you can't do it. And, you know, there have been attempts to innovate around this by letting publishers declare exactly which third-party ad vendors are allowed to place ads on their, on their site. But that, <laughs> that got wrong-footed several ways. One, again, you can sort of fake your way into the domain namespace. Another is some of these so-called trusted third parties were playing both sides against the middle and the publishers didn't take them out of this permission list. So it, it went bad. So I, I hope I haven't uh, made your eyes glaze over, but this is really a baffling ordeal for anybody trying to make money. And yet it's the main way the web is funded. And with Brave, we wanted to get uh, a better way going, not just protect users from tracking, which is their right, but let our users choose individually to give back something in, in lieu of the ad revenue that was being uh, lost through, through blocking tracking. Brave mainly blocks tracking. We, we don't block ads like on the Google search page. We don't uh, block Facebook feed ads by default. Some of our users want this and we're adding options for it or Twitter feed ads, let's say, which generally are missed with me, but they are part of the publisher's content and we neutralize or block their tracking so we don't take them out. Uh, we view them more like part of the first party content. We do block so much tracking that almost all third-party ads are blocked, and that's why Brave gets such great speed wins, battery savings, data plan savings, um, and it, it, it proceeds as an ad blocker, even though we're not intentionally trying to block those first-party ads. But uh, you know, we, we want the user to be able to give back. So we did something on top of uh, what we call Brave Shields, the, the baseline mode of Brave, which is shielded from tracking and therefore from most ads. and shielded from fingerprinting, which I haven't talked about, which is a, a devious sort of alternative to cookie-based tracking. It's maybe less precise, but it can be used also to sort of surveil users or at least try to put users into uh, categories of interest. So we block all the tracking and fingerprinting, and then we add the basic attention token system we, we did in 2017 based on a prototype we built using Bitcoin. And that lets the users who choose to give back to their creators. It even lets them, since uh, last year, I think, lets users earn revenue for anonymous ads, non-tracking ads. And this sounds kind of impossible, except you realize the browser was always in the tracking game as a passive servant of the, the JavaScript that was being loaded from the tracking companies, or the, you know, originally the pixel that was being loaded in my earliest rendition. So browsers should have some, you know, choice here. It's not just a blind servant of ad tech. Maybe that happened because it's owned by an ad company or a, a company that has an advertising division or a search ads business. But if users can choose browsers, which they still can on, even on operating systems that deny you the choice of the default browser like iOS from Apple, then users can choose browsers that have tracking prevention built in. And so Brave was ahead of the curve here, but a lot of other browsers have now grown tracking prevention features that relieve the user from having to get an extension or so-called add-on. Um, but, you know, Brave, I think, is the only one that lets you earn from private ads to give back. Because instead of Brave being a blind runtime for the ad tech uh, superpowers, we want it to be the user's agent. And if the user chooses, then the browser can study your data locally. All browsers see your data. They see your navigation history. That's why you can clear it. They see whatever cookies you do allow to be set, and Brave blocks third-party cookies by default. Um, they see, uh, you know, browsers see your, your clicks, they see your bookmarks if you choose to bookmark, 
you see where you are scrolling on a page and what's in view, and they see absolutely what's in view. With ads, there's been a lot of cheating over the years about, was that ad really visible or was it covered by something? Was it halfway up from the bottom of the page, you know, so-called below the fold? Was, was, was somebody claiming that the ad was seen when it wasn't? Was there a viewability or visibility fraud or mismeasurement going on? Well, the browser ultimately has a precise rendering model, uh, maybe even pixel accurate, depending on how it's done. And so it knows exactly what's going where and what's in front of the opacity stack, semi-opacity stack, the Z-order stack. And, and so realizing this with Brave, we, we thought the option for users, we don't turn it on by default, should allow a local agent, local machine learning, nothing too heavyweight, that is all open source that you can inspect or experts can inspect that you trust, to learn, study from, classify uh, interest from your data feeds, your, your history mainly, and, and the clusters of words in documents you browse that have to be loaded by the browser and rendered as you know in a font. So the browser is doing all this text handling. Uh, it's fairly lightweight on the side to do um, some natural language processing and machine learning. And that's what we do if you enable Brave Rewards, which is the system we have for giving the user 70% of this private ad revenue. And it is private because we don't track you. There's no server tracking your history. Instead, your browser is studying things to derive a set of interests that might be hot or topical for you, and then match those, let's call them keywords or segment identifiers against the keywords in a catalog of ads and offers. And everybody in the same region, everybody in the UK, for instance, gets the same catalog. If we get big enough, it'll be everybody in you know the greater London area, or we could even get finer grain, but it's a large anonymity set. And by taking that catalog as a download, it can be downloaded, compressed, and efficiently updated incrementally. You don't identify yourself. Everybody's getting the same catalog in the UK, and there's no signal back to us who you are in taking it. It's like downloading a safe browsing list, which is something we also offer with some extra anonymity vis-a-vis uh, -vis Google. And Google provides a safe browsing service to many browsers to prevent you from being fished, from being deceived into going to a malware site through like a link in an email. So it's similar to that anti-phishing safe browsing list. And it's a, it's a catalog of ads and offers. It's not the ads themselves. It's links to various edge cached ads. We don't run the edge caches. The advertisers generally do. And we, we don't consider the edge caches to be an adversary in, in this model, threat model. So we're not too worried about that. We can't really defend against network level attacks anyway. Um, though I'll, I'll mention something about that in a minute. Uh, so when you are opted into this Brave Ads part of the reward system, the catalog's downloaded. You're not identified by that. The machine learning studying your interest. You've been researching cars at a slow burn. It's escalated. You're now on certain car sites. You're honing in on certain European sports cars, let's say. The local machine learning can pick the best offer from the catalog about maybe a, an alternative brand you were considering, but you cooled on, or maybe it's the lead brand and gives you an extra choice offer you didn't know about, and it floats a notification. We can put this not in any page, but in your attention space, your ad space. The user has primal rights to control notifications, and in fact, some people don't like them, so we're looking at alternatives or in-app versions, but uh, if you opt into the system, the first call to action comes in a notification to you that's not associated with any page you're on. And it may be at, a, at the right time too. It's not gonna bug you if you're typing away or mousing away. It waits till there's a sign of idleness. It, uh, it respects you know, other apps and screensaver. But when you are ready and you see that notification, you can click on it. And just seeing it and the call to action, the small amount of text and a little image is worth something. 
But if you click on it, you'll get a full tab with Brave Shields up. So it's, you're again, protected from tracking, even from the advertiser. And that's the landing page. You could think of these, these Brave ads, these user ads as detached search ads. It's like there's no search engine. You don't have to go to Google, but you're getting these little texty ads like you find on the search engine result page from Google or Bing, but they're floating separately from your pages in, in a notification. And if you click on them, you get tabs. And the tabs can load a full, a full page content promoting the, whatever the brand is promoting, offering you a discount. You're still not identified. You're still shielded, but you can engage with the advertiser. This could become a long-term engagement channel with the advertiser. If you like it, it could be a place to sign up and get a test drive and get a discount. Could be a cost per lead ad model, which is very high margin. And we will give the user 70% of the revenue using our own cryptographic token on Ethereum, the basic attention token. And that's important because we block all the conventional ad tech. We're not the blind slave of the ad tech uh, companies as a browser. So by letting users opt in, we need something to replace all the payments traditionally done through you know, banking relationships or invoicing credit cards that the ad tech companies use to, to pass the revenue along from the gross revenue the marketer puts in, chipping away the fees as the intermediaries, the middlemen take their cuts till whatever 30, 30 pence in the pound is left for the poor guardian, right? We're giving it to the user because these ads are in the user's space. But we've always talked about another option. We're still working with key partners to do this. It's uh, not something we're rushing into because it requires great scale and a great partner. But we could do ads in pages too, if the user and the publisher both consent. And in that model, we give the publisher 70%, much better than the 30% the Guardian got. And we give 15% to the user. That model, even though it's not launched, we fixed the revenue splits because we want this sort of transparency. We want the blockchain auditability at the end of the day. And we want the user to get a cut. So the user gets at least what we get, 15-15, in this prospective publisher ad model. And so it's always at least what we get going to the user, 70-30 on the user ads, and 70% uh, to the, whoever owns the ad slot. Those are the two principles, 70% to the ad slot owner, and the user gets at least what we get. We tried to do this to align our interests with the users and tie a knot that prevents us from being you know, mistrusted or from ever going wrong without you know, blowing ourselves up if, if the user realized uh, that they were being underpaid, for instance. And having things settle on the blockchain helps with auditing. There are anonymity problems I won't get into here, but blockchains typically are public, so you can see everything. So that's not, you don't want to do microtransactions on the blockchain. It also get costly. But again, having a browser helps. You can buffer and you can use zero-knowledge proofs or blind signatures, various cryptographic protocols to ensure anonymity and prevent linkability of events and user IDs. So again, Brave doesn't see you, but we know from the catalog matching through the browser software running on your device that we have a good match. And then when you look at the ad, we can, we can send one of these cryptographic proofs to a server that doesn't have any idea of the user identifier. The internet protocol address gets dropped by our edge cache partner Fastly, and they can't see inside the encrypted payload. And then we see the payload without the IP address, we can do the cryptographic protocol, verify the proof, and count a view as from an actual user, but we don't know which user, we just know it was a real user, and the user can get, in return, sort of in a receipt form, get the 70% of the revenue. This is what our white paper laid out in a somewhat idealized form, but we built it. And 
Uh, as far as I know, it's unique. And we have, I said, over 1.6 million uh, monthly active wallets. I think it might be higher now. We're growing. We've grown every month. We have almost 14 million monthly active users and four and a half million uh, daily active users. That might be low now. I think we, we touched 5 million because we're looking daily at the daily actives and we wait till the end of the month to see the monthly active total. So we're growing and we're getting to the scale where we're making crypto more accessible to, to normal users. Now, normally, if you're using cryptocurrencies, you have to be pretty expert. Um, you, you can use Coinbase. You can go treat it like a bank and have a so-called custodial service. That's fine. And it's actually, I think, the right thing for most people. But if you're a hardcore crypto person, you don't trust the custodian. You want to control your security. Uh, you want to have control the key or keys to your wallet. And we're adding that. Uh, we've already done it for Ethereum. We're adding it for a bunch of assets in the crypto wallets, part of the settings in Brave. And that allows lots of different options for people who are crypto savvy. And if you're earning back from these Brave ads, then we'll also allow you to send those on the chain to anywhere you want. And we'll allow our publishers and soon merchants, there won't be a difference really, who, who verify uh, with us as well to, to transact using whatever assets they please. I should say something about our, our publisher system. Since we wanted to help users reward their favorite creators, we built something that's a self-serve system, doesn't require any business deals. The Washington Post, The Guardian, uh, a whole bunch of YouTube channels, creators, and many others have signed up already. Uh, I think it's, what, 600,000 almost? It's bat.watch is a fan-made site that reads our analytics endpoints. I'll take a peek. And it's growing so fast, it's caused us a few scaling problems we're still working on. But this is a self-serve system for, yeah, 680,000 total publishers. Whoa, I was behind. Uh, 376,578 YouTubers, 51,289 websites, including, as I mentioned, the, the Washington Post, the Vice, the Guardian, uh, Wikipedia, many others. All these sites just came, if you're a website, it's like getting a domain certificate from Let's Encrypt. If you're, um, if you're a YouTube uh, creator, it's even easier. If you're logged into YouTube, you can kind of give an encrypted fresh authentication token to us that we side check with YouTube as a service, with their APIs, and we know it's, it's really you, the owner of the channel. And so we can start delivering back to you from your fans. And we even have an affiliate program for all, all these creators, whether you're Twitch or Reddit or Twitter or website or Vimeo or GitHub. Um, I think we even did SoundCloud. I don't know if anybody took to that, though. Any of these 680,000 creators uh, can promote Brave as a better browser to their users. If the users are coming off of Chrome, they might just find switching to Brave is super easy. It works like Chrome, but it blocks all the tracking, all the ads. And so it's faster. And then we'll reward the affiliate who referred the new user once we've made sure the user is retained 30 days or more. And we have to do you know anti-fraud on this ourselves. Uh, but we do that statistically. We don't have uh, any identifiers to do it. This referral program has been helping us grow. And it's helping creators because they get paid up to $7.50 US uh, in a tiered fee card for 30-day plus retained users that they refer to us. And all this is possible due to the basic attention token. This is something that we you know, couldn't have done without that token. We've designed it to be a unit of account in the system. And we're building toward a world where there are multiple apps, we, we believe, that will be using it. We have to make an SDK available to those apps that will be abstracted from what we have in Brave. Uh, we have to work further on hardening that SDK against fraud. Once you have so-called software development kit, that's what SDK stands for. It's really a library 
any app can use, then you have that problem that JavaScript, poor JavaScript has in an ad being in the matrix. You could be put inside a fraud app. So fortunately, we're using native code, and that means we can talk to the operating system. We can make sure we're not inside a virtual machine. We can do things to ensure integrity against uh, being put into a, a false simulation. But that's that works ahead of us. Right now, we're still proving the model. We're building up the ad revenue month by month with a great uh, sales team. And we're sharing 70% with the users. And when we get the right publisher partner, we'll, we'll do the publisher ads, give the publishers 70%. I think I should pause because I've been talking nonstop for 15 minutes. <laughs> no, I mean, it's been great because to be honest with you, I was frantically keeping uh, an eye on my notes as to what question I was going to ask next. And, and you were kind of answering them almost in the exact order that I was going to oh, ask good. them, which is great. You save me some time asking a question. If you look at what Brave's doing in the space, you know, obviously, I mean, I'm a professional working in what I call the Web3 industry. There are things that I care about, such as privacy, such as self-sovereignty, self-custody and, uh, and these various things. And, and the reality is the average person doesn't care so much, as much mm -hmm. or at least as much as they should, certainly around privacy. And so, you know, Tim Berners-Lee and a number of others have, have talked very publicly about how the web's broken. And of course, we now have this new lexicon of uh, surveillance capitalism to kind of refer to the enemy. But it's, it's really only Brave that has produced a solution. And I think that's primarily because... Privacy is almost a, a byproduct. You've, you've actually solved for the experience, the poor web experience that results from this broken system. And then as you've really well articulated, created an, an incentive to uh, coordinate better behaviors. But so it kind of begs the question, do you think that what Brave represents, is it going to disrupt the Web2 platform business model? Does it reform it or does it transform it? That's a, a deep question, and it requires a crystal ball. Mine's in the shop. So I would say reform is coming. You're seeing everybody try to spray on some privacy perfume, whether they've showered or not. You're seeing privacy as a hot topic in the W3C. As I mentioned, Apple got some things right early on with their cookie blocker. Since Brave came out, other browsers started turning on various levels of tracking prevention and you know cookie blocking. I think none of them quite as thorough as ours, but... If you're a bigger browser, maybe you have to worry more about those those false positives or those broken sites. And so I think, yeah, privacy, there's been a rising uh, consciousness around the world, which is reflected in law. The GDPR, which was a long time coming, came into force almost two years ago, has not been enforced effectively. One of my buddies is an analyst in London. He just says, you know, here's the budget for you know the big tracking companies. Here's the budget for the Irish Data Protection Authority. And it's in thousand, right? It's just too small to effectively uh, balance the, uh, the countervail, the, the commercial power. But you know the, there is a regulation. It needs to be enforced or what's the point? And more such regulations have come up around the world. California has a privacy act that was passed. It was watered down due to lobbying, but the person behind it is now doing a ballot initiative to put a really strong form that won't be watered down on top of it in California. And, you know, th there's an old uh, saw from the age of the Clean Air Act that when you have California emissions laws, the whole country, the United States, every state follows them. 
because the car makers at that time in Detroit were not going to make a California car and a separate car that polluted more. And so you get this effect around the world. I think Brazil, India, China, I believe India's privacy law has criminal penalties for certain violations. It's not going away. And uh, it's setting the, sort of the standard for the market. If you really have people insisting, you know, it could be basic stuff like kosher and halal salt. So all salt is kosher and halal. There's no point in having three kinds of salt, right? I think privacy is setting a standard. And you see this with Apple, which has this not only a privacy halo, it also has, you know, shiny products that are at the top of the market. So that helps. You say people don't care about privacy, and that's true to some extent, though. It was funny, in 2011, I think Mark Zuckerberg said nobody cares about privacy. And then last year, he said, Facebook keeps you private. He didn't use privacy, he used private. So obviously, you know, as I say, the privacy perfume comes out, whether you've bathed or not. And there have to be products. It, it, that's another point you made, I think, which is right on, is we looked for product market fit, not, uh, you know, purity of, of crypto self-custody or... Uh, maximalism, making everyone learn about crypto or privacy, which is kind of also confusing and hard to understand in detail, especially if you're not technical. We just made it work by default and we're still, you know, it's a work in progress as the web changes and the adversary evolves. But uh, we made it work, we made it easy, and it saves you because we tied the knot, blocking all those JavaScripts. And I, again, I created JavaScript, so I'm here to say you should block a lot of JavaScript. A lot of that stuff's bad. You should block it. <laughs> if you don't block it with Brave, you get a good extension like uBlock Origin on, on Chrome and use that. You block it, and that saves the radio from running. Well, the number two battery consumer on mobile, last I looked when we were doing Firefox OS, was the radio after the screen. And if you dim your screen, maybe the radio is even the number one consumer, especially if it's chatting the tower to, to load all these scripts to track you and place ads. So blocking that just blocks an insane amount of network traffic, this sort of programmatic ad waterfall, they call it, where you get requests and sort of a fall, a fall through to a different ad option when the first one didn't want to bid on this particular opportunity to put an ad in front of you. And it just goes back and forth. It's not all done in the ad exchange, surprising amount of it's done in the browser. So saving that radio and the network action saves you battery life, saves you data plan. And so you get faster page loads. Sometimes pages never load on mobile because they're spinning through a bunch of ad JavaScript and they've gone dizzy. Um, you get the savings on the, on the battery, which is meaningful to real users. They, they love having their battery last, I think up to two and a half times longer in some of our studies. And they love the, the data plan savings. If they're paying on a tiered data plan, even if you're not, it turns out there's always hidden caps and gotchas for the so-called unlimiteds among us. And um, this is all just a pure win. So making the user ha happy through speed, through savings, uh, especially the battery, helps promote Brave, I think more than privacy, but privacy is tied in there. And it's tied in there in a way that people can start to understand and appreciate. We've got this, um, maybe to kind of zoom out a bit, we, we've got a new generation of developers and entrepreneurs coming to the Web3 space. And Perhaps some of them are aware of some of these kind of learnings with hindsight from, from pioneers like yourself. But one of the things that concerns me, especially because of this, this mantra that's almost everybody's indoctrinated with about move fast and break stuff, as the internet now gains a native economic layer, is there a greater responsibility in the design choices that we make. And even if there are, is there anything 
realistically we can do or are we just destined to make a new Frankenstein? Yeah, uh, like I said, all that good stuff in the 90s we did for convenience had a you know dark side. Um, we didn't know. And you, you can't really slow down. Dorothy Denning, some people have not forgiven her for the clipper chip, but she did some primal work on information flow security in the 70s. And uh, she gave a great talk. It was in 2000 or 1999. An award was given to her. And she said, you know, security, we thought would be a matter of mathematics and proofs and be all beautiful and, and sort of solved in a closed way. And we were wrong. With the internet, everybody jumped in with both feet before security was solved and it'll never be solved. So all the things we disdained in the 70s, like testing and patching, became absolute lifesavers, even though they weren't sound. You were just always finding holes and plugging them. You were watching the adversary and trying to keep ahead. And ultimately, it's evolved into, you know, browsers that are evergreen. They keep updating themselves against threats and, you know, security researchers, including fully paid ones at Google doing really good work, are finding the threats ahead of the bad guys, let's say. But that process never ends. And I think that applies to money and finance. But what's different, I think, with crypto is sort of like our approach to ads. You cut out the intermediaries. You cut out the, the big banks. Now, you may get, you know, the crypto parvenus become the new oligarchs and they lord it over the rest of us. I don't know. I think there's it's an early phase with crypto, even though, you know, everyone should own some Bitcoin and Bitcoin's lindiest. It's, it's only been, what, you know, uh, 12 years. Um, 11 years really since people realized what was going on and so you know there's uh, crypto's here to stay i think privacy is going to continue to rise i think crypto is going to continue to rise you'll see what uh now jp morgan just i read in the news today was worried about that crypto uh sort of national currencies that are on blockchains could could challenge the the old fiats the us dollar and so on well <laughs> why not i mean but if it's all centralized and sort of policed and turned into a duel of current fiat system, that wouldn't be good. But you see things like DeFi, even though there's been some <laughs> rocky <laughs> security incidents, I'm bullish. I think there's an opportunity here by cutting out the intermediaries to improve people's lives through you know, less uh, financial trickery, less uh, gouging and usury, less unfairness. And, and it, you know, it still requires justice to be a, a level up from anything economic. Uh, you know, I'm not a materialist. You can't make things be good. You can't engineer good outcomes just by sort of Newtonian physics. And you certainly don't want to use physics as the excuse for bad outcomes. Oh, you know, it was nothing to do with me, just the moon's gravitational pull. But uh, with, with crypto, you have a, a sort of a democratization opportunity that is, you know, a lot of cypherpunks were looking forward to. And we didn't know where it would come from. And in some ways, it was a gift from, you know, the anonymous Satoshi. And, you know, there are other blockchains doing interesting things. We're on Ethereum, which is the big programmable one, <laughs> um, getting kind of costly again. Uh, but ETH2 is coming. And, you know, th there's a, a new chain I'm excited about, like Ava, Solana. But uh, it, again, it's early days. And I think uh, this genie is not going back in the bottle. And I think whatever happens, if people like brave users and from maximalists down to, you know, custodial account users of Coinbase, if, if these users insist on their rights, if they insist on being able to block tracking, if they insist on being able to pay with crypto, then I think the system will, will grow and, and will be in a better state. I'm a technological optimist. Otherwise, I wouldn't get out of bed in the morning.
Well, look, you know, there's a million questions that I would want to ask you, but to be honest with you, that's that level of optimism is a great way to end the show. And I'm just going to have to, and now I've got an excuse to have you on for another one. So, Brendan, really appreciate your time. Keep doing, you know, all the great work that you're doing with Brave. I think it is, it's the killer app at the moment. It's the gateway for, I think, mass adoption of, as I said, things like crypto, but also potentially things like um, self-sovereign identity and stuff that I know you're considering in, in the roadmap. By disclosure, we are an investor in Brave, so, uh, but, but nevertheless, it's something that I want to see in, in the world. So looking forward to having you on again at some point soon. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3. Thank you.